New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Today I'm hosting Mark Lesser. He's the author of Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen. Mark, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thank you, Justine. How did you come up with these seven practices of mindfulness that you write about and teach? In some way, I think that they have been around for thousands of years but they emerged one day about 10 years ago when I was training a group of Google engineers to be mindfulness teachers. And I brought my good friend, Zen teacher Norman Fisher in to say something. And Norman proceeded to expound on these seven practices. And when I heard them, my whole body kind of just shook. And I thought, wow, these practices represent how I want the culture of my company that I was the CEO of at the time. They described the culture. And more than that, they described like how I wanted to live my life, these seven practices. I, I loved that they started with, you know, love the work and that they ended with keep making it simpler and that they addressed connecting with pain and the pain of others and not being an expert. Just everything about them, just like, oh, it's all right here. And sometimes people will ask me, how do I define mindfulness? And I'll say, well, these seven practices are a good definition, I think, of what mindfulness is. You know, when you mentioned that you were standing in front of a group of engineers, and I'm thinking, that's a tough audience, Mark. You know, I mean, they're kind of a, okay, show me. I mean, give Mm -hmm. me the data on this. Describe that culture. Well, it really helped me a lot. The good news is when I started out doing it, I was almost always co-teaching. And often I was co-teaching with an engineer. I've co-taught with engineers and neuroscientists. So I had such great luck and training in the early days. In fact, I remember I'd be standing you know, in front of Google engineers co-teaching with an engineer or a scientist learning, just soaking up what my co-teacher was saying, because I had a lot of training in meditation and mindfulness practice, but very little training in how to talk about it. So I had a lot of learning to do about how to teach and how to express these. So it was interesting. I'd be standing next to people who didn't have all that much experience in meditation and mindfulness, but really knew how to talk about it. And and could talk about it and could expound on the science of it. And, and I, I was just soaking it up and learning from that. And together, I thought we made really, really good teams. And there was a whole art that I was learning about how to collaborate and how to co-teach. So I felt like I had such good training. And I still feel that way. I still do a lot of co-teaching. I find myself in all kinds of environments from... Google engineers to, I was just doing a training for nonprofit leaders, for people that work with homeless people and veterans. 
And in a way, the question that keeps coming up for me is, how do you make these practices accessible to people from very different backgrounds? And how do you keep the depth? How do you keep a kind of sense of commitment to making these practices real and deep? You know, Mark, you tell a story in the book that really kind of demonstrates, I think, the way you have learned to teach by your own failures and your own triumphs. You were in Tokyo one time, (laughs) and you were given the instruction that this group of people, they want to do a lot of meditation, and and so you're going to have three days of lots of meditation, not a lot of talking. Mm -hmm. Do you recall that? I will never forget that that day. (laughs) Well, I'd love for you to tell us what that was and what happened there. I was flown to Tokyo. This was very early. I think this was before I even started teaching at Google. And I was leading a retreat. It's interesting. It was for eight couples from all around the world. And the men were all kind of very high-level CEOs of companies. So on the first day, we do quite a bit of sitting and a little teaching here and there. And on day two, I start the day by going around and asking each person to check in. How's it going? And what I hear is confused bored, worried, and pretty much mostly kind of negative comments. <laughs> not and, what and, you as a no, leader wants to hear. No, and, and I'm, I'm like, I've been flown to Tokyo. I'm getting paid a lot of money for this, and I am failing. There's some but really... But you're following instructions, <laughs> aren't you? I thought I was, yeah. but clearly my first reaction was I wanted to disappear or mm. run away. I could feel I failed. And I've really let down these people, and I'm not connecting. Something's not working here. And I just need to kind of cop to it. And after everyone went around, I said, clearly, this is not working. And I'm not sure what's happening, but let's go around again. And what do you all need? What do you want? We have another day and a half here. What would you like? What would be most useful and meaningful? And we went around, and what I heard was they wanted to have conversations with their spouses and with the group about they all were in kind of transition. They all were people who were in their 50s or 60s, and they were looking at the next phase of their life. They wanted to have dialogue with that. And I was like, beautiful, let's do that. And I could drop, you know, the person who was the connection He had a certain understanding that he had conveyed to me, but clearly there was a disconnect there. Yeah. And it was a huge learning for me. Well, you know, in that, it's one of the principles, connect with the pain of others, Mm -hmm. that you were not afraid. I mean, your first reaction was, oh, I'm doing it wrong. I want to disappear. I want to just become a little small mouse and run away. But instead you kind of grew a little bit bigger Mm -hmm. and you heard that there was pain in the room to connect with that. Am Mm -hmm. am I reading that right? Totally. I could see that there was a disconnect between what I thought they wanted and what they in fact wanted. In a way, I think I was also listening. I had to listen and I had to listen deeply. You know, I had to create an environment where people could first ask the question, how's it going? I then had to listen to it's not going well. And then I could be curious and vulnerable and let go of whatever agenda I had and to ask. I think these are qualities that we all could do better at cultivating. 
imagine that we could bring this into our politics or more into our businesses, right? It's a sense of... Or even in our families. Yeah, all parts of our lives. Yeah. What does that kind of listening have to do with mindfulness? Everything. Mindfulness could almost be defined as listening practice. You know, what is mindfulness? It's interesting that a lot of the work that I do is mindfulness, emotional intelligence, and leadership. And to me, these are all pretty much the same thing. And what focuses them, the focal point, is it's about the quality of listening. It's about developing the quality of being open, transparent, curious, all ways of opening ourselves to actually listening to what is happening. One of the things I love, and I find myself teaching this concept of identifying the gaps between what is and what you're wanting. You know, in this case, what I wanted was to create a successful retreat of this group of 16 people. Successful was that I'm meeting their needs. Maybe I'm stretching them. And I'm finding that I'm not meeting their needs. There's a gap here. And it's like, okay, here's what is. And now let's get clear about where do we want to go here? And then, oh, we can do that. I'll do my best to help you. So that takes me to one of the concepts in your book that I think is so important, and you've just described it, but in the book you also give it the two words, your ground truth. This is what is the reality here. We don't really tune into our ground truth. We kind of go around in a fog, I think, many times. Well, to the best that you can, what is your experience, right? Often we deny our experience, we push it away, we don't like conflict, we don't like failure. So it's interesting, right? This term comes from the military where there's so much that can be learned by what's happening in your actual experience, not what do you want to happen. This is so huge, again, in all parts of our lives, but I think in the business world, if things are not going well, it's good to know. I'm both a business guy and I'm a Zen teacher. I'm a mindfulness teacher. And I think both of these practices, you know, when we think of business, we think about precision and numbers and meeting goals. We think about Zen or mindfulness. We think about intuition and listening and looking at feelings and emotions. Like, Well, both of these, I think, are really important. I'm often teaching that mindfulness practice has a lot to teach the business world. And I think the business world, through its energy and precision and commitment to success and failure, actually has something to teach the contemplative practices and mindfulness practices. Now, what I'm reminded of is what's reality, what's happening on the ground. And If you're in a family, if you're in a business or any sort of association or institution, whatever it is, if there's not a field of trust, Mm -hmm. people are not going to report back if you're the leader. They're going to tell you what they think you want to hear. So I think what you really are emphasizing in the seven practices of a mindful leader is that that leader, their responsibility is a culture of trust. My most often said sentence these days, because I've been finding myself in the business world quite a bit, is if you're not cultivating trust, you're cultivating cynicism. Because mm. it's very easy to be cynical, especially in the 
world of work where there's hierarchies, there's money, there are success and failure, there's hierarchy in terms of how much people are getting paid and responsibility and decisions. We look for threats. We look for what's not right naturally. There's a negativity bias. There's a scanning for threats that's embedded in the human being. Creating trust is hard. It's easy to say that word, but it is hard. And it's not like you can ever say, oh, now I've created trust, I'm done. <laughs> no, and it's easy to burst trust. One lapse, one not listening, one ethical lapse, or there being a misunderstanding and not processing it skillfully, yeah. it is so easy yeah. to break trust. So this is, I think, the real work in the business world and in the non-business world is how can we cultivate trust and how can we honestly notice when distrust and cynicism is creeping in and address it and work it through and build more and more connection. I heard the other day a great, I don't know where this came from, someone said, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And I thought, oh, yeah, connection. Nice. So much of building trust is real connection, real connection. And noticing separateness, noticing when we're not connected. We can go out a little bit with this because you talk about people having only one career. <laughs> We talk about how people are going to have all these different careers, but underneath all of that, you just say it's really one thing. And what is it that you feel we're really going for as, yeah, as yeah. this human incarnation? Yeah, I find myself giving you know, career advice because I've now done a lot of things and my career has been really varied. But I've learned that, as you say, we have one career, which is around developing yourself actualize yourself, get to know yourself, and go beyond yourself. It could be all summarized as know yourself and help others. That's your career. And there's something very freeing about that. Now, of course, where we work and what we do, th those are really important. But no matter where you work, no matter what you do, you can develop yourself and help others. To me, it's very freeing and that you can explore different workplaces, different activities. There's actually, I think, a lot more similarity in different workplaces and careers than people realize. But this one activity, I think, can be brought into and honed and developed in any workplace. Oh, Mark, thank you so much for being on the New Dimensions Cafe today. Thank you, Justine. It's been my pleasure, and I want to tell our listeners I've been here with Mark Lesser. He is the author of Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, marklesser.net, and he spells his name M-A-R-C-L-E-S-S-E-R, marklesser.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Thank you so much for joining us on the New Dimensions Cafe, and I invite you, please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a 1,000 hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org.
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.